Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. John from Amplified Living Podcast, and I have an amazing guest with me today. She's the uh, founder and owner of NVCC Consulting and the owner of Spiral Dynamics. Her name is Natasha Todorovic Cowan, and she will hack into your minds with some unbelievable information about spiral dynamics and lift the veil on things you may or may not have known about our society and consciousness, I hope, and, and maybe, maybe dispel some myths, who knows, uh, but we're about to learn some amazing information. Natasha, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. It is a treat Hi. and a delight to be with you. Thank you for having me. I am uh, fabulously engrossed and amazed in this process of spiral dynamics. And if I could just share with my audience, here's the history of that kind of got me interested in this process of spiral dynamics. And then Natasha, I would love to, for you to just give me a short brief uh, about it because I know that there's a huge chunk of my audience that have, um, have working information as far as they know about spiral dynamics and many of them have read the book. Uh, so I was introduced uh, via my relationship with Tony Robbins and I had spent about five years following him around the planet and had gotten involved with his platinum partnership for a year where we've immersed ourselves, a small group of people, literally in his personal presence, immersed ourselves in these programs and information and higher learning. And uh, one of the things that was introduced to us was this idea of spiral dynamics that was created by Claire Graves. This is how we've learned it. And, um, and this includes eight levels of consciousness and there were colors associated to these levels and there's ideology associated to these levels and descriptive terms of where people are in their lives. Like, okay, we start off as these cavemanish people and we're in the first level of spiral dynamics. Look, we got spirals in the background, I love it. And we're beige color and then we moved upwards and forward to tribal and boom, 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 boom. And we keep going up these levels. And of course, everybody who uh, that I knew that was involved in this type of information were all looking for ways to hack their minds, to raise their level of life because they were super interested in just living life to the most extreme and the most fullest with the most amount of happiness. And so they were all shooting for the topmost level. <laughs> That's right. Every level is a goal to be conquered. Just right, get there, exactly. leap it as quickly as possible, and turbocharge into the next one, right? And I didn't get stuck in, in one of the ones you didn't like. Yeah, hope you didn't get stuck into Oh, God, ones. no. Don't get stuck somewhere where it would just be terrible, right? Because, I mean, God knows nobody wants to be that color. <laughs> yeah. so <it> was <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> All of that, No. <laughs> None of that. Share with me a little bit about, um, well, first of all, I just want to tell my audience too, you know, you're, you're the owner of Spiral Dynamics and your uh, late husband, Chris, is, uh, is the one who co-authored the book of Spiral Dynamics. Is that correct? So, yeah, just a little bit of tweaking of the history. The original research started by Claire Graves, totally on target. And Claire Graves never even heard the term spiral dynamics. Spiral dynamics is actually a trademark and it's our trademark programs and assessments and our services and all of that. And Chris spent almost a decade 
writing the book. So pretty much 80% of what's in that book, Chris wrote those words. And when he um, came up with the term, it was basically kind of like a Chinese menu, right? So it was like, I don't know, you know, what's this human nature stuff? Okay, let's call it spiral. And what's the change stuff? Let's call it dynamics. So what's the title of the book? Spiral Dynamics, why not? And it, it kind of hit differently for different people. Um, but as a trademark for our programs, the Spiral Dynamics certifications, which enable people to use the assessments to help them get this human nature stuff correctly, um, that's the umbrella term that encompasses our goods and services and products and materials and all of that. So there's your history in a nutshell. Wow. Okay, cool. And, and so... Um... Chris, you know, wrote the book and, and then, um, Claire Gray's contribution yeah, was, was the, was the concepts behind the different states or the different, uh, levels of, I don't know, do you call it consciousness? What do you call? No, you call, we don't. We don't. What what do call call we call them systems or we call them systems. levels of existence. Um, consciousness is a very ego involving term. And the way that we would apply consciousness to this approach is what we would ask people to do is to conceptualize or tell us what they believe consciousness is. And in the unpacking of their ways and means of conceptualizing and coping and doing what they believe consciousness is, one can begin to interpret into it um, their level of existence or the systems that made them. But essentially, we refer to these as systems. So Chris, um, Claire Graves is Chris's mentor for uh, the last decade of his life, from about 76 till 1986, when Claire Graves passed away. And the theory itself really wasn't developed um, up until Chris sort of put eyes on Graves's work, and they worked together. And Chris is really this kind of amazing human who could pull from people their deeper meanings of things that they hadn't even quite yet made conscious. And as he was helping Graves to get ready for a series of lectures that he was delivering, a series of seminars that the National Value Center was promoting, um, Chris helped to create these materials, these handouts. And to create the handouts, he had to understand the work. So to understand the work, he had to extract these key elements. And in the extraction of it, previously, Graves hadn't really put together the theory. A theory comes from uh, making sense of data and research and explaining it in a way that makes sense. So the theoretical outlines of this approach really weren't fully developed until Graves and Chris put their heads together built out this, these handouts and the slides and Chris did all of the graphics and yada, yada, yada. But until he extracted that from Graves, the, the full theory didn't exist. And when Graves was presenting it, and he didn't do very much presentation of it, uh, but as he was presenting it and in their relationship, that decade long relationship, Chris spent uh, every quarter at the Graves Farm. So before Chris introduced me to his mother, I met Marion Graves. And that wow. was 
close um, how close they were. So obviously the torch was handed to Chris and I met him in 1998 when I took my first spiral dynamics training and we just kind of came together like two little suction cups and we spent 24 hours a day, seven days a week together, uh, no more than maybe 10, 15 feet apart from one another. Wow. So that's, that's a, such an interesting, um, uh, like, like background and history about it. And, and I don't think that uh, a lot of people that I knew would necessarily know that how it played out and how it was created. So thank you. So we call it system, systems of, org is it organization of organizing? Is it systems of organizing thoughts or, or uh, thought cycles or people or communities? What is that right. about? So here I'm going to both dispel a bunch of myths as you promised and make life hard for the purpose of making life clearer. Um, so the colors came from an oversimplification of these systems, but these are relationship systems, these are political systems, these are human systems. So the individual, these colors came from an assumption that they're two things that are working together congruently. And those two things are, number one, the world outside with its particular pressures being consistent upon the individual or the group or the society who are responding to that world in a particular way. When there is match between those two particular things and only when there is a match between those two particular things do we get a color. So the colors in and of themselves have been misused as categorizing tools. They've been misused as a typology. And what oh, that and does is it strips out the richness of the approach. And, and may I just interject just, and, and I know you and I are understanding each other, but I'm afraid that my audience may may not understand. And so when we're talking about colors, so just to, for clarity's sake for everyone else. Our logo. <laughs> it, it is. Um, and, and I, I, I would, would like to share it, if you don't mind, from my perspective, how I understood it. And then, and because just as this is how it was introduced to me and, and the people that I, the, the context of the group of people that I was in and amongst my peers, it was generally how we sort of all understood it. So here's how, he, he, I feel, I'm going to really feel like a primate at this moment. Okay. So, so the first level being beige, being this survival level. And then the equivalent would be, let's say, a caveman or a cave woman, just all about food, all about survival, um, just shelter and things like that, where you are reactionary, like a lizard mind. This is how I, I sort of. That is it. mostly accurate. And what it misses is the richness of the system, right? Because here are these barely hairy human beings are not as fast as a saber-toothed tiger, who um, are really kind of clumsy. They're not very strong compared to the other creatures around them. So what do they have to do? They have to have a cute smell. They have to have a cute sight. They have to have eyes on the backs of their heads so they can survive. Because if those creatures back then didn't succeed, we wouldn't be here. So 
interesting now that you say that, then I see that we were describing then that level with only the limiting factors of the level, but we weren't seeing the superpowers of the level. The superpowers of the level that got us here, the superpowers of the level that existed for, and there are different um, uh, ideas around this, but probably for a million years before we even emerged. Wow. So, okay, so for my audience, years at least. <laughs> so we all start, the world starts at this beige level and, and go back to how I have seen these levels. And we move on up into, uh, is it purple and the tribal level where then um, people who are cavemen and cave women realize that they uh, work together as a group and then they start to form uh, co cohesive groups together. Is that, is that so, clear? So back up to beige. We couldn't have survived if we didn't collect in these groups. Okay, so even beige are collected into groups. So we are a social creature. We have always been a social creature. If you take a prisoner and you put them in solitary confinement, in three days, they show evidence of traumatic brain injury. We mm -hmm. are wired to be social creatures. So these are all social systems of one shape or form the the purple they're just more organized and there are new and different coping capacities and skills and ways of conceptualizing that separate that um, nodal group from the nodal in the beige but what we're missing is how did from beige how did we emerge how do we go past it? How did we create yet a completely different way of conceptualizing, seeing, organizing socially in the world um, to allow, you know, that quote purple, and we call it B with O, the B world, which is the animistic world, and the O coping, which is that more animistic coping, seeing the world in animistic ways, being able, unlike you know, and I'll, I, I don't usually use the colors, but unlike our beige ancestors, to be able to draw on cave walls, that's not what our beige ancestors did, to build tools and spears and harness fire and coordinate. And there are some guesses that there were 12 species of human beings back then roaming around. So the species that dominate, the species that survived was a species that gained language. So what made that particular species acquire language and the rest to not have language, right? So these are some of the questions that we need to be asking as we're talking about these transitions from beige, out of beige, into purple, then purely purple. And then, um, okay, back to my audience, then taking us into our next level, which um, would, have been, would be red, which is the power level, which there is a clear defined, um, there's uh, individuals that clearly want to be in control and they will, or they're using a, a forceful means of um, leadership to, to, um, to have control. This is, this is, uh, uh, violent and a little bit more aggressive uh, uh, behavior. And this is just how I would have understood it. I probably would have thought that, um, you know, we get into uh, medieval times and you have a king. And this is like a, a king would be somebody who um, 
maybe at this or a dictator. There's your power, uh, red power. Okay. This is what I know. I, I feel. I told you I would feel like a monkey, a little bit primal myself, and I'm trying to explain this well, all now that I have the expert in front yeah, of me. Yeah, Simon, what you're doing is you are conveying where most people land when they first start exploring. Yeah, this. well, that's my purpose too. Yes. Thank and you. you're, you know, you're being generous in that you're sharing what a lot of people um, are talking amongst themselves. But if they come into a program, they kind of like silence up and then they're like, oh, my God, I never knew any of this stuff existed. And I'm not even going to talk about what I thought I knew, you know. Right. So uh, I think what you're doing is very generous for your audience. Um, so when we take single words and terms, um, we might as well drop the entire system uh, because what we're doing is we're taking our meaning for power and then lumping it to this particular color. And what people miss is that if you have, let's say, you know, when we'll use the color terminology, we'll say somebody's dominated by red and they live in a red world. So the two things have to exist. They have to be dominated in terms of their thinking and coping and conceptualizing by red, and the world has to be pretty red. When those come together, we can say, indeed, there is red. Personality impacts the conceptualizing. So you can have someone who, from a personality perspective, is fundamentally kind, fundamentally generous, um, the fundamentally giving and um, um, maybe thoughtful. Well, that presentation of that person coping in red ways in a red world would be very, very different from someone who's um, a psychopath, kind of angry, mean, and nasty, and um, prone to getting their needs met with, with uh, I don't know, a club, right? So two very different people from the personality perspective, yet the same coping. And that's why we've got to start nuancing this some. So we're not saying, well, power is red. There are all kinds of ways to wield power. There are all kinds of ways to conceptualize power. And the person dropping a nuke on uh, a, another city is a very different kind of a person who's gonna beat you over the head with their club, right? Different ways to wield power, different ways to hold power, different ways to use power. So we really gotta walk into this way of what does it mean to think in this way, to organize in this way, to conceptualize the world in this way. And if we were to think in this way and conceptualize in this way and drop the power term, then what, what are we left with? So we've got to have a richer dialogue around what this system means. And this is the system where the birth of farming communities emerged. Right? This is the system that said, let's plant this thing here and let's protect it and let's tend to it so we can have um, wheat next summer or you know whatever it was, whatever the seasons were. Um, this is the thinking that said, I am going to explore the world and we're going to set off on an adventure and a journey 
um, that we might never come back from. Why are we doing that? Because we can't think of future. We don't have a way of conceptualizing there being a future. So we do what we feel like doing right here, right now, because that's the only thing there is. The, um, the, uh, the red color as it, for my audience again, as it moved, as we had seen it, and I'll go uh, a little quicker. So the red goes up into a blue, which I would understand as bringing order into a system. This is how I see it. That, I mean, this is how I've seen it in the past. Two steps between what caused us to change the world sufficiently so that the sea world, right? It's sea life conditions, the sea context, the sea social environmental conditions with P coping. When those come together, we get red. But the world had to change. The entire mm. approach here is that there's a world and that world is exerting certain pressures. And what we do being nimble, thinking, emergent sorts of human beings is some of us adapt, some of us don't. Those of us that adapt have to change our thinking. So it's not a step to step. And so Graves had an article that was called The Existential Staircase and people started seeing this in steps. And when yes. he saw how they were interpreting it that way, he pulled it, he hated it. He was really upset that he caused this thing for people to think in terms of lockstep. Was, was he upset too that there were colors associated then to levels as well later on? Because it seems like the colors give it that step-by-step -step process Oh my as God, well. it does. It, look, it, these were designed to make this very complex body of work accessible to the consumer. And I think it does. Does, however, and then and it maybe opens the mind of someone like me that goes, okay, look, I really want to understand this. Help me a little bit better. You know, that's like, what we're hoping for. <laughs> um, that is totally what we're hoping for. He wasn't upset. Um, you know, he saw the color. The colors emerged because Chris was carrying around this carousel of slides, right? And every time he dropped it, they spread all over the place. <laughs> And he'd be like, okay, now I have to put them all together. What do I do? So we marked them with these colors. And then he looked at these black and white title slides and he's like, these suck. This is not Chris's languaging. This is my languaging. But he was like, these are really boring. And so he took a little Grumbach, Grumbacher brush and paint set and he painted each one by hand. And that's how the colors emerged. And his metaphor was exactly what you're saying. The the beige for the savannah grasslands, the purple because that was the color of royalty and the first dyes were purple and red was this fiery passionate thing and blue, sky blue, all was right and God is in his heaven and you know law and order blue, you know it was a great metaphor and then orange with the furnaces of uh, the furnaces of um, modernity creating uh, cars and trucks and all of those things and then green with the green movement and yellow for solar those were his metaphors so you're not far off that was what he had in mind as he chose colors it was very lyrical it was poetic it was you know just really beautiful how he did it 
Um, and it was really meant to be this friendly handshake. It was meant to be sort of, you know, that charming barbershop sort of uh, uh, symbol outside that was an invitation that says, hey, come inside. No, don't steal the fluorescent light bulbs. It's cooler in here. Okay, goodbye. <laughs> well, I think it did that very well, actually. I, it, I, I know that the colors by themselves, the simplistic nature of seeing it in that way was uh, a very attractive to took people got people's attention to look at it and say okay hey that's interesting show tell me what this color why this color moves to this color and what do these colors mean that that was something that i would say across the board for all the people that i knew now maybe i know certain types of people and that's just the way it is right um but that was definitely appealing fat uh, an appealing factor into you know bringing them into that world to say oh okay let me look at that and then Taking it back, I know that you said not to give it single word or careful of looking at, because you can associate power in many different ways, but giving it a word or a phrase that, that then titles this color, that was very attractive. I think it did a very good job. Very good job. The you blue, like that. I said. Blue. I, I agree. It, it's very appealing. Looks great on our logo. People have all kinds of conversations with it. I have to tell you, Chris regretted creating the color code. <laughs> And well, maybe but dilute what he really felt felt his work was. Is that why? Or um, because what he saw was we categorize so easily, and we like to put people in boxes, and we look for these yeah, simplistic buckets, including and, ourselves, boy. including ourselves. And what he bemoaned was the fact that people were playing these pin the color on the donkey games, and the invitation was to see more deeply into human nature, to connect more deeply, to get to know people more deeply. And instead it gave people a very facile way of moving quickly without noticing, without seeing, without connecting, without deeply understanding. And that's what really troubled him. It was really an ethical and moral dilemma for him. And, and for as, me as well, as we saw how people used it, we saw people, uh, we saw grown men in our programs have meltdowns because they thought they were a certain color and they weren't. And it's like, dude, you walked in here, the same person, nothing has changed. You're just labeling yourself differently. What the heck? You're right. I, I mean, I get it. I, I get that. And uh, and it's obvious that we can see that the way that you're communicating it, that we can see that the colors can cause that, that, that they do cause that sort of like uh, sim simple thinking and they don't dive any deeper. Um, and for my audience, then just moving up the ladder, it was from blue to orange, orange being something that I understood as being an achiever mode where people are trying to, to create things. And this is the this is my understanding of it. This is how it was introduced to me. So we can we can have an achiever mode in red. We can have an achiever mode in blue. We can have it in orange. We can have it in green. It's going to take a different um, a style. It's going to look different. But the big piece in, in our orange is multiplism, right? Let, let's back up. So in our blue, we've got a right versus a wrong. We've got, you know, people who are for us or against us. We've got um, higher versus lower. I mean, this is where the, the creation of a singular God came from. 
because what did I have to do? What's different for me in blue than it was in red? Well, I'm thinking of the future. Before this time in history, we did not have the capacity to think in the future until this system emerged. Until red emerged, we didn't have the capacity to think of self, to have self-awareness, right? So each builds on the next, each builds itself from the previous and the next one emerges from the earlier one. So without this duality in thinking, we couldn't have built, you know, in the orange, which is this spread, which is from black through the different grays to white, right? We didn't have that finesse and nuance of thinking. We didn't have the multiplism before we were able to build on that. There's good, there's a bad, there's a right, there's a wrong. You know, you're evil, we're good. So and so um, from, from the orange, it took the spiral goes up in colors to take us to green color, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, in, this, in this green level of consciousness, uh, my understanding was your uh, like world uh, conscious, what's mind is yours. Uh, we're concerned about everything and uh, we're hugging trees and we're all hippies and it's peace, love and kindness and we're all taking mushrooms and sharing all our money and sharing our time. This is, so we're in green now. Tell us a little bit about that, that level. So some of what you said can very easily come from blue, mm. right? So if you think of the former Soviet Union, right? Um, people did not quote own property. Everything belonged to everyone. So, yes, there's a more social component to it. Um, but remember what we're building our cognitive structure on. Remember what we're building our conceptualizing on. So if I said to you, communism is the one and only right thing, and you were like, heck no, communism is evil, right? You know, I could be that kind of hippie, um, no property owning communist, right? And you could be a complete and total capitalist. And we are still looking at each other as evil and you're wrong and I'm right. No, you're wrong, I'm right. And we go into battle, but we'd be going into battle um, in what we term content level stuff, right? So capitalism versus communism, it's an ism. It's a thing, it's a content, but the way I hold it I hold it absolutely. It is the one truth, this communism. No, no, this capitalism, it's the right thing. It is the one thing, it is the one truth. We hold those notions the same way. We might speak a different language. We might have different attire. We might have different things that we believe. The way we hold the idea is with that absolute truth to this. So that hippie, that hippie can be blue. That hippie can be orange. We want to change the world. I'm going to change my mind. I'm going to change my consciousness. Peace, love, and pass the shrooms. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, okay, so then um, from orange, and, and in the peer group that I, I am in and that I was in at the time of learning this, 
the moment everyone saw that there was two more levels, level seven and eight, and these two levels were termed or grouped together as being more spirit level um, thinking or spirit level consciousness. I'm throwing it out there, just out in the out in the wild blue yonder, so the people can hear it. Moving from orange took us to yellow, which was a flex and flow level, which uh, for the way that we understood it was like we had then. Uh, awareness of all the different levels and then knew how to use them and would utilize them at our beck and call uh, for whatever it is that we wanted in life. Right. And that so, was excellent flow. Go. That was in the book. And no. <laughs> so there, <laughs> it, look, um, that Spiral Dynamics book was meant to be part of Blackwell's management series. So it was designed to try and get managers to see their people differently, uh, to look at the organization differently. Um, what Orange gave us with the multiplism, with the shades of gray, with the nuance, with the differences, um, with the idea of loving diversity is actually getting into diversity. Meaning I have to cope with people who don't think the same way. And they might not think the same way, and that's okay because they have something to contribute. So what's emerging from the multiplism is relativism. And that's where a lot of people, for a lot of people in this approach, the wheels come off because they don't understand relativism. And they think of green as the hippie and they're like, I don't wanna have a damn thing to do with smelly hippies, you know? Um, and I don't wanna do shrooms and I just wanna leap over to whatever is the coolest top of the model place that I can get to. And we have to develop an appreciation of otherness where we disagree, where we can see the humanness in others, where we can empathize with their particular, uh, with their particular place in the world, with their particular come from. And if we can't get that in green, then there is no leaping over green. There is no bypassing it because each element brought forth parts of it, but they shifted and changed in the conceptualizing and the world has to change. We're like these little oysters and the world throws grit into it, us, and our oyster bodies kind of create pearls around that grit. So I, I definitely want to circle back and get that that point about how the world has to change. I want to come back to that later, but um, this is sorry core. To... If we don't understand that this is the world that's changing around us, we're not going to leapfrog everything. We are rising to the level that our world demands of us. Yes. So we're so, not it, going to grow past the problems that we are facing in our world. Would you then say that the world is what determines the order, uh, not the order, but the world energy itself is what determines the availability of growth amongst the inhabitants of it? I mean, it, it's two things, you know, and I'm going to oversimplify it, but it's, you know, it's that soft tissue of the oyster, which is our mind, our brain, our neurology, how we think, how we cope, 
our resilience, our ability to stick to things, uh, the way we talk to ourselves, all of that internal neurological, biological, chemical soup that's responding to the dirt that the world is throwing in. So it's, it's both, it's both simultaneously kind of pushing back and forth against one another. So then um, finishing off the levels from level, the seventh level, which is what we talked about, yellow, flex and flow. And because um, I'm eager to get through the colors just for my audience, we go to this final level of uh, turquoise, okay, which um, for some, it was like, oh, I want to get to turquoise. You know, that's my goal to get up into this level. And for others, it was like, yeah, I have a, nothing to do with turquoise. Okay, you can, <laughs> can keep your turquoise and I'm going to, you know, I want to kind of hang out and in whatever else uh, area. Um, and turquoise was then seen as this sort of, uh, I don't know how to put well, it. Well, because we don't know how to describe it, we'll just throw other terms that we don't know that might be there, kind of, sort of. So <laughs> I think essentially, do you want it's the supposed to come across as this like great understanding or great knowing, but how do you describe it? I, you know, turquoise. Go ahead, you tell me. You, truth, you. The whole truth and nothing but the truth? Please. All right, so all of these systems um, came from researching the nature of human nature. And there was evidence of these systems based on the data, based on the um, psychometrics, based on everything that, you, that Chris and I also collected. Um, but Graves did not get conceptions that were termed HU or B prime, O prime. And knowing that there would be something else, and of course we've got a logo, right? So Chris created a chapter and our former business partner, Don Beck, created a chapter. And those two chapters were in conflict. And so they selected someone who was an editor, who was a writer, and the question that they asked was which chapter would help to sell more books? It wasn't based in research. It wasn't, it was made up. And the world looked at this and went, okay, well, that must be truth. And it's like, no, we're inviting you to have a conversation about what the future of humanity might be like. This was a proposal. This is not truth. This is not based on data. This has no research behind it. We've been collecting data for, um, you know, Chris and I since 98, uh, Chris since you know, like the mid 70s, Graves since uh, the mid 50s. And we've done assessment across probably a dozen different languages. Um, over 100,000 people in over 50 different countries. Um, just saying something exists doesn't mean it exists. And it was kind of funny. And it was kind of funny to see what people did with it. And when they identified with it, what it meant to them, how they built an identity around a color that they made up something about. Fascinating. That is, it is, it is fascinating. It's, so what I hear you saying is that this last bit was just like 
help us develop more. Tell us where we're going. Share your ideas. Do you have any hypothesis? We're thinking like this. I wonder where the planet is going to be. I wonder where our brains are going to go. I wonder what systems we're going to develop. But there's got to be more, but we don't know. Is that more like what that that's, process is? That's, that's pretty much it. And, you know, the, the spiral itself has become one of the world's most powerful inkblot tests. It is one of the oh, yeah. most incredible Rorschach tests because sometimes I, I don't have the energy, so I'll just listen to what somebody means by their interpretation. And it says a lot more about who they are and how they're seeing somebody else or how they're seeing the world based on what colors they're choosing and their meaning for the colors. It doesn't say anything about an analysis that they did because usually they didn't. It's their meaning for something. And they actually feel seen and they feel more understood because they've been able to add these colors to their way of describing things that they didn't have language for before. And very often I'll, I'll stop people and I'll say, I think it's a good idea that we don't talk colors just tell me what you mean. Just strip the colors out of it because you have a meaning for it. I have a very different meaning and you haven't spent time with me to know what my meaning is and where we come at, uh, come from um, in regards to these colors. So just tell me your story and strip the colors out. And it becomes a more meaningful conversation. Sure, yeah. Oh, I can totally see that. But you're really getting the, to understand somebody, what's, what their thoughts are and what they feel and, and what they're thinking. Yeah, 100%. You know, which brings me up to another thing that fascinates me is uh, the group, the NVCC, that you, it's a consulting group. And um, from what I understand, you would even help a business by using these processes. Could you... Could you like walk us through what is that? What is that like? Do you, well, first of all, my first question would be: Are you stepping into small businesses, or is this large, uh, like uh, enterprise uh, corporations? Yeah, well, I've, we've had um, people from Fortune, a global Fortune 500s, and we've worked with folks who are solopreneurs. So this is this is about human nature. This is about change. This is about the problems that we're trying to solve that other things haven't solved. So very often um, people struggle with something, but if they're missing the human factors, then that's the time to talk to us. We deal with leadership, we deal with culture, we deal with change, we deal with teams and conflict. Uh, we helped a family-owned business, about 1,500 employees, go through a significant ownership shift and change. Um, I've helped um, C-suite execs figure out how to deal with one another more effectively and deal with their teams more effectively. Um, we've brought teams together for small entrepreneurial organizations who had less than 15 employees. So it's, it's, and a lot of my clients don't even hear about the colors. They don't know anything about the colors. I don't mention it. Um, we'll do the assessments, we'll do the analysis. And then my job 
is to figure out where they want to go, where we are, and what proper approach will get them there as quickly as possible and figure out what the problem under the problem is. And is this approach geared towards the, uh, I'm probably going to answer my own question, but uh, geared towards the, uh, the organization itself. So the people that are in it, employees, uh, owners, managers, leaders, so on and so forth, or, and is it geared towards the company and its uh, target uh, audience, who their consumer is, who their uh, avatars are? Well, we've done both. Um, you know, you're in Australia. One of our clients was Foster's and Foster's sent, I think it was three or four departments. And the job was um, for them to start to create a different view of their brand avatars. Um, so that's one way to use it. It's a more metaphorical way. It's a way of getting at the psychographics of the customer. You can certainly do that. Um, but the approach works from the individual to the group, to the organizational, to the nation, to the species, right? And it's, it's an approach that reveals just this nature of human nature. So if the problem is one, and, and there are a few things, if the problem is one that relates to human nature, number one, and number two, management for leadership find that human nature aspect important. They're not transactional in their thinking, but they're transformational. They're willing to pause to do things a little bit more slowly at the front end so they can work faster later. There's a reason why 70% of change efforts fail. There's a reason why 67 to 87% of mergers and acquisitions fail. There's a reason why a mere uh, 30 some odd percent of the workforce is engaged. And the reason is human beings from this perspective are invisible to other human beings. Yeah, so you are uh, essentially, let's say a merger and acquisition, you're a lot, you're, you're gonna work as a, as a, a mediator of a sense to show the new uh, leadership model that's coming on board, who they're actually here to lead well, and how, and what's the best way to do that? So 85% of CEOs post M&A wish they paid more attention to the people factors. But when you're going into the, the fury of the legal and the um, accounting and the numbers and all of the processes and policies, you forget about the people stuff. And ideally, the, the most ideal situation is before we're going into all the crazy negotiation, this has got to happen, that's got to happen, and everybody's overwhelmed with all the paperwork and the lawyers and the accountants and everything, that both parties are so clear on their cultures, that we've done a cultural analysis, that we've done it department by department, leader by leader, organization by organization, that the actual strategic plan has these cultures in mind, these leaders in mind, and that the transition and the integration 
is done with this thoughtfully because I think it's like 13 or 16% actually realize the value that they'd intended. And what we keep doing as humans is doing what the last job was and repeating it. And we're not learning from our mistakes. Um, we know how to do it well from an accounting perspective, from a legal perspective, uh, from maybe an HR perspective, but we don't know how to do it from the people perspective. And that's why it keeps failing. And that's why our numbers consistently are those bad numbers. And we ignore you know, it um, doing it. We ignore it and keep doing it because what we did in the past was working and we're hoping that it will work again. You will figure it out along the way, but we're not going to do anything different. Yeah, right. Because we got it our bonuses. So, so has, has, I'm sure the answer will be yes in some way, but I'm wondering from your perspective, what has shifted now since we've gone through a global pandemic, the way business has been done is different. Family um, systems have changed. You have, uh, you know, you have mothers and fathers working from home now, you know, which is a quite different. Uh, you've it's got people who have <laughs> Yeah, you've, you have uh, so many different um, changes that have come because of uh, whether you blame the pandemic or you blame um, a political position or you blame governmental legislation. The fact of the matter is just things have changed. How does that play into where we are systematically as a, as a civilization and, um, and as business exists? How does, how does a business look at their business I mean, I have businesses. I, 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 when I look at my American business and I look at my Australian business, the systems that are in play are completely different right now. Where they weren't that different before, yeah. they are black and white different now. So shed some light, expand my mind a little bit and our listeners' minds a little bit. What is changing and how can we shift with it? So I'm going to do two extremes. Everything is changing and nothing is changing. And it really depends on who you are, where you are, your socioeconomic status, uh, where you are in the world and what the policies are. So you take your business, your business in Australia is in a different contextual space, a different environment, a different social setting and social system. So it's going to have different pressures depending on the policies and the way people see the business and the way the customers are interfacing with your business than maybe the one in the US. So even though we are having a common experience of a pandemic, there are people who are locked in place and they've got all their relatives and they're loving up on one another, right? They're having a great time. They're thinking best pandemic ever. I'm with my people. I don't get to spend this much time. And now I remember why I love them so much. It's going to be a very different context and environment than a family who's locked together. And they're like, okay, when this is done, the a divorce has to happen. And not only that, we're moving and I'm moving to a totally different country because I never want to see this person again. And they're always fighting and they don't know how to appreciate and love on one another. 
Um, we're going to see babies born and we're going to see divorces after this. Um, so not everyone, even though we're having this experience of a shared pandemic, not everyone's having the same experience. And it comes down to what's happening under that roof. There are more um, people getting drunk because they can't take the situation than there was before. There are more sales of alcohol than ever before. There's more domestic violence than before because people are locked up together. So somebody in a domestic violence situation is gonna think about it very differently and have a very different experience of it than someone who's in a very loving home with somebody that's, that's their soulmate that they wanna be with forever, with kids that are their best friends. And so everyone's having the same experience and everyone's having a very different experience. When, when I look at America, uh, I see, uh, I don't see problems. Uh, I see problems and challenges and opportunities all the time. But when I look at America, America now, um, I see momentum. Uh, I see a lot of energy in motion. If I compare, let's say, just these two countries, because at the moment, you know, this is where my mind is, Australia and America. I don't see the level of momentum or energy in motion, which you can call emotion as well. We don't see as much of that happening here. But in the United States, I see a massive amount of energy in motion, a massive amount of momentum. Um, there's a huge charge in and around everyone, whether it be because they're charged about uh, their social system or they're charged about their, their stresses and their fears or they're charged about the political system or they're charged about uh, uh, Black Lives Matter, for example. Massive charge, rioting, then they're charged, you know. Uh, there are, I just see all that energy and motion. Could you, could you talk a little bit about that energy and motion and how spiral dynamics could see that playing out in different systems in the United States. I mean, you're in it. You had mentioned you're from California. You're in the mix of the mix. Um, I think there, there are different reasons and different groups and different movements. Um, you're, you might be talking about entrepreneurs. Um, you might be talking about organizational leaders. And what we saw were three groups of leaders. There were the leaders who were looking at this going, I don't know what's going to happen, but I am going to charge ahead. We're going to take risks. We're going to invest. We're going to explore. We're going to do courageous things. And we're going to do things that we haven't done before because these are different times and they take different thinking. And I know a number of entrepreneurs who have done better over this last year than they've done in previous years. Then we've got the group, which is like, I, we've got to pivot. I don't know where we're going to pivot. I'm going to smile on the surface, but this doesn't look good and I'm scared, right? And then we've got those who are burying their heads and have been burying their heads and they've sat back, they've kind of hidden, they've been waiting, you know, to test the winds and they're still not sure what to do. And every time they start something, they're a few months back because they've just, they've just decided to check out. So I think we've got all of those. Um, the Black Lives Matter is something that has been going on in this country for 
of centuries. Um, it's one of the consequences of not treating humans as humans. It's one of the consequences of bias. It's also one of the consequences of self-awareness, awareness of own potential, and the desire to be better, grow more, contribute more, show up in one's complete fullness and talent, and say no, that this is no longer acceptable. So we've got some old systems that are shaken up and shaken loose that aren't really working with today's society. We've got other systems that are so far ahead that their competitors can't even catch up because they don't know where they've been. Um, and then we've got others who are just like hiding <laughs> and, and it's all over the place. Um, you know, the whole schools are open, schools are closed. You don't know what's up, what's down, what's in, what's out. Are we going to school today? We're not going to school today. So people have to just kind of breathe and relax. And the, the people at the bottom of the socioeconomic spectrum are the ones who are most hard hit. The people in restaurant jobs, the people in hospitality, the people who are in those people jobs are really having to be creative and innovative and think about different ways to do things because anything that's like face to face, this is how this virus is passed on. And there are a lot who are in denial. There are people who were told if you go to Thanksgiving, you go to Christmas dinner, you're gonna risk getting this thing. And they came back and they got the thing. And they were told, don't go, and they're ignoring the science. So we've got people all over the place doing all kinds of things. There are people who don't even believe that there is a COVID thing out there. Yeah. Despite hospitals being at zero capacity, which we've got in this state. And that yeah. is the range and spectrum of humanness. It's uh, like I find the um, the diversity of you know the people their their opinions and and uh, I like I like the diversity of the theories of of how people see the world you know like the, you had mentioned some people don't even think there is a COVID and so behind that is a number of you know types of theories and hypotheses some of them you can, can call conspiracy type things where people are thinking outside the block uh, outside the box. Uh, you know, there could be a flat earth, you know, that, that kind of stuff. That's uh, now people are creative in their thought processes, but I, I actually enjoy that creativity. I actually enjoy that diversity. I enjoy that, how that um, opens people's minds to new opportunities. Even if there's no truths to those opportunities, they do provide an element of, again, motion and momentum in thinking. Does oh, that? So John, uh, this is where it gets exciting. Okay because we're not, what we're doing is um, the, the sort of the commercial use of uh, these, the, this color code is we're going to label them. We're going to label them whatever we don't like if we don't like their approach, right? right. What makes this fascinating, fun, enlightening and eye-opening is not what they believe, but it's how did they come to believe that and when confronted with evidence that contradicts them, what do they do? 
How do they rationalize it? What do they do with dissonance? Where does the information need to come from for them to believe it? And when they don't believe it, where is the information coming from? And how are they processing these gaps between evidence and reality, between what they tell themselves versus what other people tell themselves? That is Gravesian thinking. Hmm. The um, so what does it take? What does it take? I promise I would circle back to this. What does it take for a planet to shift? What does it take? What what happens? Like, where do we go to next? I mean, obviously the planet has shifted so that other systems could arise. What is there? Is there? Okay, so first question would be. I'll just see if I can bring this together, make it a little bit more compact. Is there a label for the planet as a whole where you would say that the greater percentage of the planet is at a certain system of thinking? Is that, does that exist? I mean, I understandably, there are many systems, but would you say that there's a ways heavier into one? Have you heard that statistic that the average human has one breast and one testicle. I've never heard that statistic ever. Never. And that's what we do. Tell me more because. <laughs> well, that's, that, that's what we're doing. And we're saying, you know, 50% of the planet is women and 50% of the planet is men. And on average, the human being is going to have one breast and one testicle, right? Because <laughs> we're merging everything into yeah. an average. So I look. The evidence is, you know, we, we, we started this conversation with beige, right? We're very different from that world that used to be um, a, an A world, just naturalistic world with N coping, which was very um, animal-like, very instinctive, very automatic. We're very different from that point in our history. So the general trend has been this transformation towards greater complexity. What I'd like to challenge is, is that complexity for the better? When we can completely destroy our planet based on the nuclear arms that we have, is that for the better? When we can completely pollute ourselves into cancers of all kinds, is that for the better? And when we can um, change the climate such that our very future is perilous, is that for the better? And all of those challenges introduce greater complexity into the environment. But does that mean that's for the better of the human species? Is it for the better of the planet? And is it for the better for our future? We could turn it. I think we could also kind of flip that and say, yes, in the path that we've been going, we've been creating things that we can ask, are these things that we've been creating for the better? And I think that we've been answering those things to a, to, to the to a point of saying, well, no, we, we definitely need to help our planet. We definitely need to not blow each other up. It would be a good idea not to like explode each other's countries and stuff. It's the uh, only planet that has chocolate. The chocolate matters. 
<laughs> chocolate is great. Um, that's right. Uh, so I think that we are moving. It's, it sounds like, it feels like we're moving in the right direction. And, and once again, there's just a lot of energy in and around that motion. Is, does that, is that what it take? Is that what it takes to, uh, I don't know. I think, I, I, guess, I guess my kind of thinking is still from the basis of that people are wanting to kind of climb a ladder when in fact there's just, in order to have a ladder, you have to have every single rung. Everything has to exist. To see the world in terms of ladders, one has to have a hierarchical view of the world. Right. And that is not the way you see people in green thinking, and you don't see that in yellow thinking. See, how interesting. And so the spiral in terms of it's, we, we, when we see the spiral, it's a mix that mixes together as it, as it rises. So they're all mixed together. Is that a more um, better visual view of what spiral dynamics is like? It is, it really is, John. Um, you know what it is though? I, I, can, I can say that when I was introduced to it, I was introduced to the system as viewed as a pyramid. So you see it visually as steps, right? Like you could, that he was the- Yeah, and Chris was, what he wanted to depict with this, uh, with this spiral is increasing cognitive complexity. And what people did with that was, well, if it's increasing cognitive complexity, it's obviously better, right? And it's like, right. no, it's, they're, they're different things. It's not necessarily better. Sometimes it's worse. We're creating problems. With the solving of certain problems, we create new problems. That is this system. It's watching the problem solving and the problem creation layering themselves amidst one another. And that problem solution sort of a formula is this never ending quest. That's why we titled uh, Graves's book, The Never Ending Quest when we put it together. Um, it's, it's that notion of, and, and I think we have to hold two things and be comfortable with two things simultaneously. One is that there is an ongoing progression and perhaps that's going to go until the limits of our neurology can no longer cope, um, which was Graves' view. And I think we also have to be willing to take the uh, position that potentially there is a stopping point. People love the notion of it open-ended and us evolving forever. And I think that with the potential that most humans have that they never tap into, that they really are trying to reach for, that it's probably a bit more open-ended. But we also have to hold the idea that at some point there are gonna be limits to what our brains and bodies and minds can do. And we need to so, hold both. And, and with that limit thing that we just talked about there, I see people you know, breaking through their limits and hacking their minds. Yes. So let's talk about magic mushrooms, LSD, DMT, shoot me some, let me hear some of your thoughts on people's use of now psychedelic uh, um, 
medicines to mm -hmm. then alter states of consciousness and what role, if any, do you see playing in the systems that people uh, are experiencing and uh, may or may not be in? So this does not come from any research, um, but it was Graves's opinion. And just as a lay person, I think it's kind of interesting that people use the kind of chemistry that they're trying to simulate as they attempt to get to their next place, psychologically and sociologically. So there is something to be said for the kind of substance they're choosing and the kind of experience that they're seeking. Um, one of the experiments that Graves um, reported on was um, in prisons when you used to be able to do these things. Um, so prisoners would learn from reward. And I think you'd shoot them up and, you know, don't quote me, it's in the book, but I don't remember it. It's either adrenaline or noradrenaline. So you'd shoot them up with, let's say it's adrenaline. And then magically, the prisoners would learn from punishment right? That's psychologically very different. But what would happen is that that substance would wear off and then they'd go back to learning from reward, right? And that's a very, that's a very core Gravesian um, theory. So if we're ingesting certain substances or taking some, you know, whatever that chemical is, yes, it's going to have an impact on our neurology, and it's going to have an impact on our brains and our experiences, and it might be more expansive. And then when those effects wear off, you know, what did it leave behind as a residue? Memory of an experience? Did it actually alter our neurology? Because we've got, I, I forget what the estimate is, but it's like these billions and billions of chemical reactions and neural network pathways that we can train, but when we're not working them, then they atrophy. So what is it? I mean, we have amazing potential, absolutely no doubt, right and untapped, absolutely yeah. untapped, right? And we alter that with the food we eat, we alter that with the relationships we have, we alter that with the way we treat ourselves and how we talk to ourselves and what we choose to do every day. If you do 100 push-ups every day, and I do, I don't know, uh, an hour of meditation you know, every day, our brains are going to wire differently, but we're strengthening different things. So are you suggesting as, as well to, uh, to currently look at your current hab habitual practices to see what you are currently strengthening towards? And if you wanted to, well, do people want to shift? I mean, like the consciousness of wanting to shift something, learn something, grow something, then which I would teach people, my patients would come to me, the people that I coach would come to me and I would ask them, what is it that do you truly desire? What is it that you are chasing? What is it that you want in, in and for your life? And then they would tell me, and then I'd say, okay, well, tell me what you're currently doing in your life and do those match? And half the time they don't. And then it's like, well, tell me why I'm not getting what I want. It's because you're doing this and you want that. 
you know, you, they're, they're not matching at all. So why don't you do more of this and then you'll get that. And then that's the way it'll work. You, you do uh, things that are, that take you to those points. And so you're saying too, you will find people are wanting to have these higher experiences because they're looking to a, a way to exercise themselves towards them. And well, does it I, stick? Uh, that Those are the questions. Those are the big questions. I think from what I've seen with the data that we have gathered, um, a lot of the folks who are seeking and searching and desperate for these spiritual awakenings have something that they are deeply dissatisfied with, a deep pain that they're trying to spiritually bypass. That's what we've seen. And that's not true for everyone. Um, sure. But the people who are like, I want to change them, right? Well, every time we turn around and say, well, what is it about them you want to change? Do you realize that's not something they want to change that they're happy with? This is more about you, right? Sure. These are the conversations we need to have about owning who it is we are and who it is we want to become and being thoughtful and purposeful about becoming the person we want to be, not pointing at the other person. What about it when you have people that are stuck in behaviors because of experiences that they've had, uh, so on? Like, uh, I'll just give maybe two different types of experiences. Somebody who, say, is suffering from PTSD as one experience, uh, or then uh, let's take another person who's potential, uh, I don't know, uh, just the depressed. Uh, they may not have PTSD, for example, or they might be addicted to uh, substances or something like that. And then utilizing, uh, which the re a lot of research, there, there is new research and new um, movements to use psychedelics to help those people. And then you're using us, let's say for the PTSD person, I think it's... Uh, I'm not sure which it, it is, but different psilocybin. substances help psilocybin, yeah, helping that, that particular person get over that. And they have had great success. So there must be some something then that changes. We well, don't know what that there is. Are neurological, chemical, biological, you know, this is a neurological, chemical, biological, soupy thing that we're in, right? So we are always managing chemistry of some sort one little, I think it's a one little, I forget if it's a DNA or molecule and you end up with schizophrenia, right? You know, I mean, the balance of this, this thing that we have, mind, body is amazing. And I'm a person that says, you know what, if it works and um, it helps, go for it. Uh, I'm sensitive not the of, our time. of losing yourself. It does not the expense of losing yourself. Yes. I, I think that people are trying to discover some part of themselves, to be honest, in, 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 in that practice. I think Maybe for they, some, yeah, I think for, you're right. I think for some it is. And for others, there is such contempt for self and such judgment of self that they are trying to lose themselves so they don't see the person that they have contempt for. You know, so we've yeah. got to decide, you know, together with our clients, what is it that's really going on here for you? Uh, I'm sensitive of our time. We, you have been so generous. I, I, I want to um, also mention for the, my listeners, don't tune out just yet because uh, I understand you're doing a training. Are you doing a training? 
an online training? You have something coming up. Actually, we do. We have uh, Spiral Dynamics Live coming up in, um, I forget exactly what the date is. I didn't have it in front of me. Um, but March, about it, uh, March, March, yeah. right? That sounds about right. End of February, beginning of March at some point. Yeah. Okay. And where can people go to find out more information, which, I mean, if they're watching the video, there's a website down the bottom, but where can, just to, to say it for my, my fans here, where can they go to get in touch with you? Um, they can uh, drop us a note, um, send a note to Natasha at spiraldynamics.org um, and uh, Cameron will make sure to take care of you. If you'd like to go through a change process, we've got a little change process. It's kind of fun. It's eight days. Um, they can play with the uh, playbook for change. Um, and I think your audience probably might enjoy that. Uh, if you go to bit.ly, bit.ly slash change playbook with a capital C and a capital P, um, change playbook, bit.ly.change playbook, that'll put you into our system. Um, and if you put your uh, country as Australia, then we will notify you about this event because it is um, specifically designed for Australia time zones because too often we've been doing it for um, our European and American friends and um, Aussies have to wake up at like one in the morning. I know that's painful. So yeah. we've organized to do it at a normal time for normal humans. That <laughs> makes communication with my team in the United States a little challenging being here on the other side of the pond. But yes, we, uh, we often see these amazing, I often see these amazing uh, webinars or uh, seminars that are online and then it's like, oh yeah, two o'clock in the morning. You can join us. Yeah, great. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, Thank we've you. Done, yeah, we've done a few of these and um, uh, it's been a while since we've had a bunch of Aussies and I really miss Australia. We used to go every year. Um, so, and I knew that it was time to do it. So yes, we are doing it. <laughs> Fantastic, awesome. Uh, Natasha, thank you so much. You've been so generous with your time and, and so informative. You have opened my mind up to the reality of what the work is that you are, are doing and the types of things that you're trying to do for the people in, in, in business and, and those the people that you consult. And, um, and, I, and I deeply appreciate it. Thank you so much. Everyone, thank you. Um, remember, it's Natasha uh, Todorovic Cowan. Whoa. Okay. Got it. And uh, you can find her at spiraldynamics.org. Thank you so much. Thanks, Natasha. It's been great doing this with you. It's been a treat and a pleasure and an honor. Thank you.